Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hey everyone, it's Patrick. This is the next in our series with Dr. Chris Semino, VP of Kaplan Medical and their Chief Medical Officer, and our own Chase DeMarco, who hosts the Medical Nemesis podcast. We'll get right into it, but first, our question of the day from Kaplan's Step 2 CK Integrated Plan. And just a reminder, ITB listeners can get 15% off the Step 2 CK Integrated Plan by going to captest.com and using the promo code ITB15. And if you're an AMA member, you can add on your 30% AMA discount for a total of 41% off. Man, I wish I could get 41% off my DEA registration or board certification renewal. All right, here is our question for today from Kaplan's Step 2 CK Integrated Plan. And our interrogatory is, which of the following is the next best step in management? A two-year-old girl is brought to the emergency department by her parents because of a severe cough with sputum fever and rapid breathing. She has a productive cough that began one month ago and has become persistent. She has a history of prolonged neonatal jaundice and two episodes of bronchiolitis at ages 7 and 13 months. Her temperature is 39 degrees Celsius, which is 102.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 90 over 64. Her pulse is 90 and her respirations are 28 per minute. Oxygen saturation on room air is 88%. Physical examination is positive for nasal polyps and coarse breath sounds that are heard on auscultation of the chest. A chest x-ray shows hyperinflation with patchy consolidations. She is below the 5th percentile for both height and weight. Which of the following is the next best step in management? Is it A. Genetic testing B. IV ceftazidime with tobramycin, C, IV levofloxacin, or D, oral trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole? And the correct answer here is B, IV ceftazidime with tobramycin. So this patient has cystic fibrosis. It's indicated by the presence of a respiratory tract infection, her past history of neonatal jaundice, her recurrent episodes of bronchiolitis, and the finding of nasal polyps. All of these things point to a diagnosis of CF. Other findings that should make you think of it include chronic diarrhea, features of malabsorption, meconium ileus, recurrent sinus infections, failure to thrive, or, of course, a family history of CF. Remember, the CF gene is located on chromosome 7 and codes for a protein called the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, or CFTR. A defective CFTR leads to an abnormality of chloride transport that produces abnormally thick mucus, resulting in lung, gastrointestinal, sweat gland, biliary, and genitourinary system problems. Patients who have CF have an elevated salt content in their sweat and other secretions, difficulty clearing abnormally viscous mucus, and chronic lung infections. The most appropriate initial diagnostic test for CF is the sweat chloride test. Respiratory manifestations include a persistent productive cough, hyperinflation of the lung fields on chest x-ray, 
and pulmonary function tests that are consistent with obstructive airway disease. Chronic bronchitis with or without bronchiectasis occurs as the disease progresses. It is accompanied by acute exacerbations characterized by an increase in cough, tachypnea, dyspnea, increased sputum production, and weight loss. Digital clubbing is often seen in patients who have moderate to advanced disease. Acute pulmonary exacerbations are treated with antibiotics after sputum culture. Intravenous antibiotics are indicated when there is, one, severe exacerbation, as in this patient who has an O2 sat of 88%, two, bacterial resistance to all orally administered antibiotics, or three, failure of oral antibiotic therapy to resolve symptoms. The most commonly used IV regimens, which covers pseudomonas and other gram-negative organisms that are the most common infective agents in CF, combine tobramycin plus an anti-pseudomonal semi-synthetic penicillin like ticercillin or piperacillin, or tobramycin plus an extended third-generation cephalosporin like ceftazidime or cefepime, or tobramycin plus acarbapenem, like imipenem psilostatin or mirapenem. Choice A, genetic testing, implies a CFTR gene mutation analysis, which may be used as an adjunct for diagnosis in atypical cases of CF, but it's not widely available and can't be considered the most appropriate initial diagnostic study. Moreover, this patient has an O2-sat of 88% and she's tachypnic. She needs to be treated with IV antibiotics first, and then the definitive diagnosis of CF can be established. Next, levofloxacin. So this is used in community-acquired pneumonia and has activity against some gram-negative bacilli such as pseudomonas, but it is not approved for systemic use in children. Remember, in children, there's the potential for damage to the cartilage, tendon rupture, especially the Achilles tendon. Next, we had oral trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So oral antibiotics are appropriate if a CF exacerbation is mild, provided that all pathogens identified, of course, are sensitive to the antibiotic of choice. But this child has an acute severe exacerbation of a respiratory tract infection as evidenced by an O2 sat less than 90%, which indicates the need for hospitalization and intravenous antibiotic therapy with strong pseudomonal coverage. So our recaps, one, when cystic fibrosis is suspected, treat the acute severe exacerbation of pulmonary infection with immediate hospitalization and IV antibiotics. Two, the most commonly used regimen for a severe CF exacerbation, IV tobramycin with ceftazidine. And now on to the interview. The next topic that we're going to discuss, that has to do with learning certain materials from different disciplines for the step one anyway, such as a lot of microbiology or, or histopathology that seems to be very intensive and experience-based and difficult to learn for many students. Like, when am I going to use elongation factor 2 in a real clinical setting, even if I am a clinical pathologist working down in the lab? And these types of, of really discipline-specific knowledge bases that we need to learn, I know you had a, a great philosophy on why that is, and I'd love for you to share that with the audience. Sure. Um and, and the same issue comes up just in the medical school curriculum. 
I'm sure there are students who say, why am I sitting in this lecture um, that seems to be irrelevant to my future career as a psychiatrist or a surgeon or whatever? You know, why do I need to learn about uh, toenail fungus or, or whatever topic it is? And that gets back to sort of the social contract between medical schools and society. And what the role of the medical school is, is graduating people with an MD degree. And in theory, they are now going to be able to practice any field of medicine. So we're not graduating people who can become interns and then learn the surgical subspecialty or the obstetrics or the psychiatry subspecialty as a resident. We're graduating people who can potentially be any kind of doctor, even if the residency doesn't do its job. And there's, there's restrictions on residencies and so forth also so that they will do their job. But here's, here's sort of an interesting loophole people don't often think about. To get your license, you need, you need basically three things. You need an MD or DO degree. You need to pass all those exams and you need one year of clinical experience. And then you're licensed and you can then practice medicine. You could quit your residency after your internship year, get your license and open up an office. Now, you could open up an office and say you're a neurosurgeon or say you're an obstetrician. You can't say you're board certified. Uh, you can't say you're board eligible, but you could say that you were one of those things. And if you were in the middle of the wild somewhere, you could practice those things. In some cases, you know, people who are not trained in surgery have to do surgery because they're the only person for hundreds of miles around and it's to save someone's life. And it's legal. So why don't we see more people like opening up a Park Avenue neurosurgery office with one year of internship? And the answer is because they wouldn't be able to find an operating room that would let them work in, in, in their operating room. They wouldn't be able to find a hospital that would let them, let them work there. They'd have trouble getting malpractice insurance. So there's other kinds of things, but those aren't legal restrictions. Those are just sort of come about naturally. If I was a billionaire and one year out of my medical school and having that one year training, I could build my own hospital and, and do neurosurgery. You know, I don't know how long I'd survive before I'd be sued by every patient I worked on, but that's what medical schools in theory have to prepare their graduates to do. A little bit scarier when you think about it that way. The other reason, there's two other reasons that are a little easier to, to swallow and justify. One is physicians change careers. As a dean of students, everyone who goes into residency gets a dean's letter in the U.S. And when someone goes into residency years after they've graduated and have done a residency, now they want to do another residency, they have to go back to their school and say, I need a dean's letter. And they're not going to get an updated dean's letter. They're going to get the same one they had 20 years ago. But it means as the dean of students, you get to see who's reapplying for and switching careers. And it happens every year. There's at least a few people each year going into the match for a particular medical school who are past graduates who are changing careers. And I don't have the exact statistics, but for some reason, it seems to be a lot of surgeons go into psychiatry. And, and there's other changes also, but that's the one that, that sticks in my mind. So I hope they remembered and were taught a sufficient psychiatry back when they were in medical school because they're changing careers. And then finally, the other reason, which is it's a, it's a more broad 
and justifiable reason the type of content being taught, but maybe not testifying the detail. But it's really helpful to be able to talk to those specialists in the other areas if you know something about their specialty. And so you have a patient where you're interacting with multiple specialists and they've got multiple diseases and pulmonologist is saying this is cardiac and the cardiologist is saying this is pulmonary and you're the internist who's got to make the final decision. Well, it helps that you know something about cardiology and pulmonology so that you can ask them both the right questions and come to a decision of what you are going to do with this patient. That's a very great point. I did not really fully understand that until reading uh, some of your past conversations. I know it was mentioned before that you don't need to be licensed in a certain field in order to open up. Let's say uh, I want to do family practice or better example, I want to go into psychiatry or pathology or something that's very specialized. I could also, after a year of residency in matter interning in that, go and open a family practice in my neighborhood. And that's something that I didn't fully comprehend. And I, I wonder if a lot of other students might not understand that either. And it makes more sense why there is such a broad scope in medical school, being that the laws are as they are. Yeah. And, and then, of course, it also extends to all that basic science that underlies those disciplines. So, you know, okay, I'm going to be a family practitioner, but I still have to learn the basic science that goes into cell staining and pathology and recognizing those images. Now, years, decades later, would I still recognize some of the pathology I learned in medical school? Absolutely not. And, you know, that's the other thing that probably drives students nuts. If you gave the USMLE step one exam to practicing physicians, they'd all fail. Or most of them would fail. Uh, they, they, they ace the questions that are relevant to their field, including the basic science questions that are relevant to their field. And they'd be completely lost. Uh, like I would, I would definitely fail the immunology section. I didn't learn it. I'd have to relearn it, but I also don't use it. And I don't use a lot of that information within pharmacology. Well, neuropharmacology, I think, I hope I would do okay on, even though I actually ha- haven't actually practiced clinical medicine for about 10 years, but I'd be a little shaky just by not having practiced it for 10 years, but antibiotics and things like that, I'd be lost. And so it's frustrating students to think, why do I have to learn all this stuff when my own family doctor doesn't know any of this stuff or doesn't know much of this stuff? Mm-hmm. I've definitely been there multiple, multiple times, but it seems like any standardized test, it doesn't matter what field you're in, whether it be medicine or construction or real estate, whatever you learn for the test, pretty much no one is going to know a few months to a few years after taking the test because it's just not necessarily relevant to their specialty or to their job performance or wherever they work. And uh, it seems to be a constant frustration with any kind of standardized exam. I'd push back on that a little in terms of what student memories are like. Um, And and one way this comes up is when you ask students, you know, what what was on the exam? And you don't ask them, we don't ask them, you know, tell us the question, but we just ask what topics. And they will say, you know, there were so many questions on, on this, or, you know, maybe it's multiple sclerosis and, you know, which is my worst subject. So I feel terrible. Well, guess what? People are going to tend to remember the questions they had the most difficulty with. So it's going to feel like there were more questions on that subject. Exactly. So that's one problem. But on the flip side, students remember a lot more than you think. So, um, I used to, uh, do a session on artificial intelligence in medicine. 
as sort of an elective with students. And it always fell, um, uh, it was during the summer after their first year, and they'd finished anatomy just a few months earlier. And so the first session, I'd say, okay, how many, how much anatomy do people think they remember? And of course, it was, oh, we don't remember any of it. And then I'd walk them through a simple exercise, and I'd say, do you think you can name all the bones of the body? And most, some, most people would say, no, I don't think so. And I said, well, how many bones are there in the body? And everybody knows, at least a couple months after anatomy, they all know there's 206 bones. It's like, okay, well, let's see if we can count them. And you get through the ribs and you get through the retrieval bodies. And it turns out that most people can name 90% of the bones uh, of the of those 206, maybe usually more than that. And everyone gets stuck on like the bones of the skull and the metacarpals and um and metatarsal bones. Uh, but that's the majority of the skeleton. And then you start asking, well, what muscles are attached to these bones? And so it turns out they do have a lot of that information still. It's just buried. And by the next set of information they learn, they don't know the right way to access it. And you hope that they will access it when there's a patient in front of them and they need it. And the ideal way for that to happen is if it's taught that way. And that's actually the, the reason exam questions are focused on putting cases in front of students tied to what's being tested. Yes, I, I kind of see where you're going there. And remembering the names of the bones is one thing, but then remembering different associations with not necessarily bone disease, but let's say fractures of certain bones related to nerve damage or vascular damage, which vessel is most likely to be damaged. Those types of questions that are seemingly pretty common for basic science anatomy questions, those seem to be the part that is harder to remember, not just the bone itself, but the pathology or the physiology or the other associated uh, ailments that can come with that bone being injured. Yeah, and you're right, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying somewhat. Uh, the brachial plexus drives people nuts, and the only people, I think, who can you know recite the brachial plexus cold are the people who are doing electromyography studies, the, the neuromuscular physicians, because they use that every day and they need to you know, go through it every day with every patient uh, and it keeps it fresh. And everyone else is sort of memorizing and forgetting, memorizing and forgetting. Yeah, it's a use it or lose it type of phenomenon. Yeah. There is one last question I had for you that you brought up a little bit in our past discussion, and that was regarding the goal of the USMLE. I know that you mentioned it's supposed to be pluripotent. It's supposed to prepare a medical student to potentially go into any medical profession. But the exam itself, I know there's been some debate whether the scores are actually where we should focus or if pass-fail is where we should focus, and that seems to be historically more of where it was. So what is your philosophy on that? Yeah, and, and there's a lot of buzz about this because um, there was a conference convened about whether the, the test or all the tests should be pass-fail or, or continue to be scored. And I think it's important to note that that conversation is happening not because of any problem with the exam, but a problem with our residency selection process. And the residency selection process has gotten so competitive that that enhances the, the score because we all know that the score is being used by residency directors as a filtering mechanism to figure out who to interview. So the NBMEs and USMLE's philosophy is 
we're just we're not even trying to train people to be pluripotential. We're trying to ensure that anyone who gets a license is safe. And they set the bar pretty high, understandably, because you want them to be safe. But that's a yes-no question. And so that's the argument to make it pass-fail. To serve its most important function, which is patient safety, it should be pass-fail. Now, the, the, the problem is, though, it has, for whatever reason, in, you know, however long NDME has been producing this test, more than 100 years, it's had a score. And to now suddenly say, well, we shouldn't have ever had a score. We should have always been pass-fail when it's organically grown this other purpose that's being used by residency directors. It's sort of like washing your hands of the whole thing. And I feel NBME usually can't really go back on it. Not until there's an alternative in place. And is it their job to create the alternative? Maybe, maybe not. I, I, I'm sure people would be very upset to think, oh, I got to take two tests now. One, uh, one that's just on my licensure that's pass fail, but then another one that's going to help the residency programs decide whether to interview me. Um, so I don't see that happening. The ironic thing is there's other things that could be done that would reduce the score pressure, but the people who have the power to do them don't want to do. So perfect example is, um, if residencies all published information about the scores of their existing residents, like what's the mean and standard deviation of their current residents, that would tell applicants a lot about whether they should even bother applying to a particular program. Um, without that information, students are in the dark. And so what are they going to do? They're going to do what we see they're doing. They're applying to way more programs than they need to because they have no idea which programs are going to even consider them. Um, so the irony is the programs have the power to reduce the number of applications they're getting simply by publishing that information, but they don't want to because they're in competition with all the other programs. And so they don't want to come out and say, yeah, we're a second tier, a third tier, a fifth tier program because our average score is lower because they know they're going to then be evaluated and chosen by applicants based on that. So it's sort of a, an interesting turnaround of the problem. And unfortunately, program directors have the power to not fall into that trap. So they're not going to. They're going to continue to keep that information secret about I feel like that's a great point. It's sort of like any economic argument. It's wherever the incentives are. So if residency program directors set the incentive as your step one score, that's where all of the students are going to focus on. And uh, I think there was a recent study from the AAMC regarding students applying to too many residencies because of exactly what you're talking about, not having valid information. I think there's also a new tool out. I can't recall what it is at the moment that is starting to gather some of that data from select residencies. Yeah, there's been efforts by uh, different medical schools to gather that info within their school. I heard about a consortium of schools in Texas who were doing that and sharing the information, which is certainly more powerful because you're getting not just one one school's data, but multiple schools. So you're going to even out some of the some of the factors that might be school unique. Uh, but you're also getting a larger population of data, which is important. I don't know where that went, how far that's gotten. The thing you're referring to, I think it was jointly published by AAMC and NBME, and I think it's available through the AAMC Careers in Medicine website. But I find it a little bit disingenuous. So when you actually read through the graphs, 
and what they're telling you. They're basically saying most students will get a residency interview if they apply for this many programs. And adding another 10 programs doesn't add much more. And so that's their, and they're, they're using sort of a, another economic kind of approach to saying, when does the return on additional applications start to drop off? But from a student's point of view, it may be dropping off, but it's still increasing. Uh, it's not, it's just not increasing as fast. And so if I said, well, if you, you know, you put this many applications in, you have an 80% chance of getting an interview. And if you put in, you know, 20 more, you'll have an 85% chance of getting an interview. Well, are students, are they going to say, yeah, I'll settle for 80%? Or are they going to say, no, I, I want to maximize my chances? I think in ENT, which, which has very competitive and very few programs, I think the standard is all students apply to all programs. ENT is fought back by requiring all applicants to have a unique personal statement for their own program. So if your personal statement for program A doesn't mention program A, they won't look at your application. And so you got a student submitting 60 applications and writing or modifying 60 personal statements to play this arms race that's sort of insane. And everyone agrees it's broken, but there's no one overall ruling body that can say, we're going to fix it because we got the leverage to force the other stakeholders to follow along. I foresee a giant jump in freelancers writing personal statements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one last topic on the residency directors using a step one score. As far as I've been able to pull up every study I've seen regarding step one and higher exam scores just seems to say that you're going to score well on your next board exam. It doesn't necessarily correlate to better patient care or any of those factors that you would think are more important for ultimate healthcare. They're just saying you were a good test taker and you're probably going to be on the next one or you're more likely to complete your residency, but that could be very multifactorial. So I'm not really sure what the point of it is, especially when it seems like the step one was originally created by MBME just to be a bare minimum to pass as you're yeah. kind of saying they're trying to go back to. Yeah, but there's, there's two other things to throw into the mix. One is Nobody's selecting a resident based on their score. They're selecting whether to interview them based on their score. So if I've, if I've got 10 spots and I have a thousand applications, pretty good chance that if I just take the, the hundred highest scores among those thousand applicants, I still got, you know, for every one I accept, I'm rejecting nine. I still got a lot of applications to go through, but a lot of choice. And I'm going to go through them and find the other criteria, like the dean's letter, the clinical grades, the, and, and especially the comments written in the clinical grades for clerkships. Those are the things that I think residency programs look at very carefully to also then decide, of that 100 I selected, who are the 50 I'm going to give an interview for? And, you know, frankly, if we just picked 50 at random out of that top 100, we'd probably find 10 pretty good residents. The other piece is program directors do have to worry about whether you pass your next exam because part of their accreditation is based on what percentage of their graduates from residency program pass the specialty boards. You know, and it kind of makes sense. Why would you have a residency program around where people complete the residency and don't, don't get certified? Something's wrong with that residency program. 
either they're selecting the wrong people or they're not training them well. And so the passage on that test is an important factor. And you want to increase your chances that your residents are going to pass. So you want to teach them the right thing, but you also want to make sure they're good at taking tests. Okay, that's a fair point. But I guess from the student's point of view, they probably don't need to worry if they have a 240 or a 260. Either way, they have their foot in the door at that point, unless it's a very, very competitive residency. Yeah, that's true. Well, actually, here's another interesting point that students miss, which is there are other students who say, I'm satisfied with the 240, and that's likely going to get them interviews, uh, even in some of the more competitive specialties. That's getting you in the range where you're going to get interviews, maybe not dermatology or ENT, but most of the other high-stress, high-competitive residencies. But some students lose sight of this and they say, I want a 250, I want a 260. And what they're chasing is they want to be in the most prestigious residencies. And, you know, and that's a leftover from, I want to go to a prestigious college. I want to go to a prestigious medical school. Well, the reality is that what we think of as prestigious residencies, it's, it's kind of twisted. You know, it's like, well, of course, the Columbia Presbyterian, just to pick one, Columbia, Columbia University is prestigious. I think we can agree on that. So therefore, Columbia Medical School must be prestigious. Okay, we can agree on that. And therefore, the Columbia Presbyterian hospitals must be prestigious. Well, it turns out there's a lot of hospitals that are affiliated with Columbia Presbyterian. Um, and they have different qualities. So you might say, yeah, I want to be at Columbia Presbyterian, the main hospital. Or you might say, I want to be at Harlem Hospital, both affiliated with Columbia. And both, frankly, pretty good residencies, but you're going to get very different experiences. In Columbia Presbyterian, you're going to learn a lot about cutting-edge technology. In Harlem Hospital, you're going to have hands-on experience as a resident that you may not get in the same way at Columbia Presbyterian. And so you really need to look at other factors like what's their patient population like? Um, what's their staffing like? And, and not the name anymore. Um, and so the same applies to, frankly, a lot of city hospitals that are not affiliated with Columbia. And so the, the score suddenly, if you're looking at it that way, yeah, it may actually help you get into those quote prestigious residencies but only because everyone else is thinking the same way and playing the same game. There's plenty of equivalent residency programs where that, that you would say, well, that's not prestigious. Frankly, as a, as a practicing physician and a faculty member, I've been asked almost more, most frequently about what college I went to. And occasionally I've been asked about what medical school I went to. And it's really rare for anyone to ask me what residency I went to. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of great information. I think that covers my fairly extensive list. I hope that really gives some great tips and points and eliminates some of the worries for the audience on some of the topics we've discussed. It's been packed full of information, and I'm really glad that you came on the show today. It was my pleasure. I'm always looking for ways to help calm students' anxieties and help them focus on what's really important. Dr. Chris Samino of Kaplan Test Prep, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Have a good day. All right. Thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. Please tell your friends. And if you have a moment before this podcast ends, pick up your phone and hit subscribe. And if you're not driving, leave a review of the podcast wherever you're listening now. 
It helps us get the message out and keep providing you the best free audio resource for board prep and medical school. Thanks again.